0: Good evening. evening. Some of you are awake. Well, if you haven't figured out, uh, we are still in Genesis and we have come to chapter 19. Before we uh, get into the passage, I want to read a quote from one of my favorite books. It's a smaller book. It's called The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. Uh, Some of you are familiar with it. In it, um, there is a, uh, and this is, this is fictional, but the ideas in it are very interesting, uh, there is an older, wiser demon giving advice to a younger, more naive, and less sure what he's doing demon whose name is Wormwood. And in, in this particular quote, this older demon says this to Wormwood, t- and, we're, and he's talking about a man that, wor- that Wormwood is trying to tempt and trying to fall a cause to fall into sin says this my dear wormwood obviously you are making excellent progress my only fear is lest in attempting to hurry the patient you awaken him to a sense of his real position he must not be allowed to suspect that he is now however slowly heading right away from the sun on a line which will carry him into the cold and dark of utmost space As long as he retains externally the habits of a Christian, he can still be made to think of himself as one who has adopted a few new friends and amusements, but whose spiritual state is much the same as it was six weeks ago. And while he thinks that, we do not have to contend with the explicit repentance of a definite, fully recognized sin, but only with his vague, though uneasy feeling that he hasn't been doing very well lately. Remember. The only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards, if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. I read that quote to you because we are about to study a passage of Scripture in which there is a righteous man, Lot, and he has been traveling down a gradual slope of compromise and conformity with the world. Now, not to the ultimate detriment of his own soul. He's a righteous man. He's been saved. He's not going to lose his salvation. But he's about to experience an incredibly rude awakening to just how ineffectual his life has been in service to the Lord, despite his righteous standing. See, up to this point, we've been following Abraham. We've been studying Abraham's faith, and he's struggled and made some very unwise decisions at times, but he has been loyal to God, and he has done what God has asked him to do. And we've seen that exchange, that interplay between God and Abraham. But now we're going to spend some time looking at Lot. And Lot is really, in some ways, a, a, a warning. When Abraham is someone we're supposed to, in general, look up to. And be like, hey, I, I, I see those things that he is doing, and I think that's good. I think I should follow after that. Lot is someone that we should be warned against. That we should observe his life and go, oh, my life could end up that way? Even if I'm a Christian? I don't think I want that. That's what we're looking at today. We've just seen God promise to Abraham that he will not sweep away the righteous with the wicked. That's what Justin was telling you guys about on Sunday. He just had that exchange with Abraham. And now he's going to come to Sodom and Gomorrah and the rest of the cities in the valley. And he's going to destroy them. He's going to bring judgment. And against the backdrop of that terrifying judgment, against horrific sin, we're going to see God keep his word. He's going to rescue Lot. He's not going to let Lot get swept away. And his faithfulness will be on display, but only in the bleakest of circumstances. So we have a title for tonight's lesson. It is this, The Consequences of Sin and Compromise. The Consequences of Sin and Compromise. And if you're looking for a point to consider, kind of the main thrust of this, what I hope you can learn tonight is if you are a Christian, you cannot lose your salvation, and you're protected from God's wrath. But you remain vulnerable to the consequences of sin and compromise with the world. Christians will face consequences if they compromise, even if they're true Christians. So to set a little bit of context, because we haven't looked at Lot for a little while, Genesis 13, 12, when Abraham and Lot's herdsmen were having their arguments, they had an argument, and Abraham was like, look, You go one way, I'll go the other way. What did Lot decide to do? Well, he decided to go to the valley where Sodom was. So it says that he settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Later on, in Genesis 14, 12, when the northern kings come and attack the southern kings and they capture Lot, it says that they also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed, for he was living in Sodom. So no longer was he near Sodom, he was in Sodom. And then before we get any further... Because what we're about to read in Genesis 19 is going to be very interesting to see what Lot does and says. Let's turn real quick to Second Peter. Because this is important to set the entire context here. Second Peter, chapter 2. Because when we read, you'll be like, Lot was a righteous man? What are you talking about? Well... 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 6. Oh, sorry. I'm in 1 Peter. Let's try that again. There we go. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 6. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. So, the canon of Scripture declares that the man we are about to read about in Genesis 19 is a righteous man. Does that mean that he is perfect? No, it means that he has been saved that we will see him in heaven, that he is the Old Testament equivalent of a Christian. It's very important. So now let's turn to our story in chapter 19. Verse 1. Now, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. And he said, Now behold, my lords, Please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. They said, however, no, but we will spend the night in the square. Yet he urged them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. So we already know that God had come to Abraham and said, I am going to investigate Sodom to see if the sin that I've been hearing about is really as serious as it is. And we know, well, God already knew how serious this sin was. But this was, again, as Justin explained, this was him showing Abraham when there is a report of sin and evil, you need to investigate. You need to do your research. And that's what God displayed to Abraham, and that's what he's displaying to us. He comes to personally witness the evil of Sodom. So this is God's official investigation. There's five observations that God is going to make in this official investigation. First, we notice that Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. So that means, let, let's think about the progression of Lot's life. He was in tents near Sodom, then he was living in Sodom, and now he's sitting at the gate. And for those of you unfamiliar with ancient culture back then, if you were, the gate was where you did business. Inside the city was where you lived and where you protected from the outside elements because you had walls. But any people who were traveling by, well, they don't necessarily want to go all the way into the city. They just want to do business. So all the business was conducted in the gate. Marketplace stuff, political stuff, you name it. Happened in the gate. And Lot, when it says that he was sitting in the gate, apparently he's been spending quite some time here and he's gained a, some level of official status because he's sitting in the gate conducting business. And so that's where he is when the angels come to him. And as soon as he sees them, he does something very similar to what Abraham does, remember? When the Lord and the angels come and visit him by the oaks of Mamre. Abraham goes, runs out to them, bows down, hey, let me feed you, let me take care of you. Lot does a similar thing. And so we see here, the first observation, is that Lot passed the hospitality test. Lot passed the hospitality test. And it's interesting how you notice that he says, please turn aside, rise up early and go on your way. Spend the night here, sure, but then you should get up and leave very early. And then they say they're going to spend the night in the square. And he's like, no, 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 please come to my house. Why is he urging them so strongly? Well, we're going to see. Verse 4. After they'd eaten, before they lay down, the men of the city, get specific, the men of Sodom surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. So this is the next observation. Sodom failed the hospitality and the sexual purity test. And this is why Lot urged the visitors to come with him, as Sodom was not kind to strangers. Apparently, Lot knew that when new people would come into the city, this is what would happen to them. So he's trying to rescue them from this, but they come anyway. It's very interesting what the Bible has to say about the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. It says, kind of looks at two different things, which is why I mentioned hospitality and sexual purity. Because Ezekiel 1649 says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance abundant food and careless ease, but she did not help the poor and needy. And a lot of people will take that passage to go, hey, see, look, homosexuality actually isn't all that bad. What's really bad is that they were not hospitable. They were trying to gang gang rape these visitors, and that's what the sin was. So people try and use that to excuse away the homosexual sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. But Jude 7 says, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, that's the idea of homosexuality there, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So, when we think about how bad this really is, that all the people from the entire city are coming because they want to gang rape two visitors who came into their city, what's going on here is twofold. In Romans 1, we read that men deny God, and they deny him as their creator, and then God gives them over to their lusts. And what's happened here is this culture, this society, has, one, rejected God and rejected their own, his design for what marriage is supposed to look like, so they've rejected that. But they've also become so self-centered that they don't care about other people. And when you mix those things together, sexually, I can do whatever I want, without any repercussions. I'm going to do whatever I want, whatever I think feels good. And two, you don't care about other people. This is what you get. You get people that are willing to do whatever they want for the sake of their passions. That's the sin of Sodom. Extreme self-centeredness and pride, both in sexual identity and in doing evil towards others. So how does Lot respond to this? Whole horde of people shows up at his door, demanding to rape his visitors. So what does he do? Verse 6. But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him, and said, Please, my brothers, do not act wickedly. Great start. Verse 8. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with man. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. What? So there's two things going on here. First of all, hospitality was viewed as very important in ancient culture. We saw that with Abraham. He literally bowed to the ground. He took care of their needs. Lot does the same thing. He bows to the ground. He takes care of their needs. He feeds them. And so there's a bit of an extremist, hey, hospitality is really important. I need to protect people that come under my roof. But there's something else going on here, and this is the next observation. Lot failed to remain holy. Lot was a righteous man. However, clearly, he has been living in Sodom for so long that there are some things that do not bother him anymore. And that's why he makes this suggestion. The lesser of two evils, perhaps. And either way, you, no matter which way you look at it, there is no excuse for this. This is a very sinful, horrifying suggestion. So how do they respond? Maybe, maybe they'll take this deal. Verse 9. But they said, stand aside. Furthermore, they said, this one came in as an alien, and already he is acting like a judge. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. There's another observation. Lot failed to witness to the world. Why do I say that? Clearly, based on how these men respond to him, Lot has never said a word about the sinful actions of the people in Sodom. Because they say, essentially, who are you? And when did you become a judge of us? When did you decide what was right for us to do and what was wrong for us to do? He's never said anything up to this point. So clearly he's failed in this way. Verse 10. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them. This is referring to the two visitors. And they shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that, this is so interesting, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. These men of Sodom are so full of passion that they are blinded and they still want to try to get into the house. That leads us to our next observation sodom failed also to keep their passion in check they still wanted to get in the door even though they had been miraculously blinded verse 12 then the two men said to lot whom else have you here a son-in-law and your sons and your daughters and whomever you have in the city bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. They're saying, we have seen enough. God has seen enough. This is happening? Uh Uh-uh. They're done. Lot, we're here to rescue you. Let's get out. So that moves us on to the next section of the story, We've seen God's official investigation. Now we come to Lot's disappointing example. We're going to see four facts about his example. Verse 14 Lot went out and spoke to his sons in law, who were to marry his daughters. Potentially they were perhaps maybe not right up next to the door, so they weren't blinded, but they were perhaps out in the crowd. They were like, whoa. And maybe they're not kind of backing off. Some time has passed, clearly. He went out to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters and said, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But he appeared to his sons-in-law to be jesting. It's very interesting. They don't think he's crazy. They think he's joking. Those are two very different things. One is, oh, you're serious. And the other is, <laughs> you're You're joking. So here's the first fact about his example. Lot had no witness to his relatives either. Clearly, he has never discussed to them his belief in God and his desire to be righteous, because otherwise they would think he was serious. Instead, they think he's joking. Verse 15. When morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, "'Up, take your wife,' and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. And then verse 16. But he hesitated. This is our next fact. Lot had his priorities divided. He had his priorities divided. And this is why I am convinced that Lot, while a righteous man, was compromising. You see, Lot chose, and when he made this choice, That choice in and of itself was not sinful, but he chose to live near Sodom to do business. It was going to be good for his flocks. And then he's like, well, I mean, it's going well. If I really want to be continuing to prosper and do well, I should go into the city. Okay, so he lives in the city and he's continuing to do well and he's continuing to prosper. And he's like, okay, you know what? I, I want to be a part of the business going on in this place. So he is sitting in the gate. It seems that he has not paid close enough attention to the reality that he has been allowing his conscience to be dulled, his convictions to lessen, and he has completely ignored any thought of witness because of all of these interactions that we've just seen him have. And then it gets to this point when visitors come, all the men of the city come to try to rape them, he tries to protect them. He's about to have really bad things happen to him, and then the angel and then the men reveal themselves to be angels by miraculously blinding all these men that are trying to do terrible things to him. And then they tell him, "Hey, we just blinded all those people. We're angels from God. We're about to destroy the city. You need to get out." "Hey, hey, you need to get out. Hey, it's morning. It's time passed. Why aren't you leaving? You need to get out." And he's hesitating. Why would he hesitate? unless he had attachment to his life in Sodom. And this is the application, part of the application that I want to bring to us tonight. The same thing can happen to you, can happen to me. That you get comfortable in your life in the world. That you get comfortable and and wanting to desire security, prosperity, wealth, power maybe, relationships, and you start pursuing those things and you pursue them to to the degree and you prioritize them to the degree that God and righteous living takes a lesser priority. And then when push comes to shove, are you going to be righteous or are you not going to be righteous? Are you going to listen to God or are you not going to listen to God? You hesitate. That can happen to you. And Lot is a living example of it. And I don't want that to happen to you. 1 Timothy 6, 6-7. Godliness, actually, is a means of great gain... When accompanied by contentment, for we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. Guys, don't prioritize the things of the world. You can't take it with you. It's not going to go with you. It's going to burn, just like everything else. So don't attach yourselves to it. Don't let yourselves become attached to it, because then you're going to compromise. But God is so gracious to Lot here, even though he hesitates. Continuing on in verse 16, So he hesitates, but so the men seized his hand. <laughs> they grab him in the hand of his wife, and the hands of his two daughters, for the compassion of the Lord was upon him. And they brought him out and put him outside the city. God's so gracious to Lot, even in his hesitation, because he's one of his own. So let that be an encouragement as well. As strong as the conviction ought to be, let that be an encouragement that if you belong to God, you will not suffer his wrath. You will not suffer eternal punishment for sin. That has been taken by Christ. You can rest in that. Verse 17. When they brought them outside, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you. Do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, Oh, no, my lords. No, don't. Mm, no. Now, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have magnified your loving kindness, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, for the disaster will overtake me, and I will die. Now, behold, this town is near enough to flee to, and, and it is small. Please, let me escape there. Is it not small? That my life may be saved. This is the next fact. Lot had little faith in God. Dude, you've just been saved from a mob, miraculously. And they've dragged you out of the city, and they say, hey, go to the mountains. And he's like, I can't make it to the mountains. I'm going to be swept away. He has very little faith. Also, I find it interesting. Instead of, because let's remember, who's nearby? Who can, like, go stand over the ridge and look down on the cities in the valley? Abraham. Why isn't Lot thinking to run to Abraham? But no, he's like, hey, this little city over here, let me go over there instead. It's very sad. But God is is still gracious. Verse 21 He said to him, Behold, I grant you this request also, not to overthrow the town of which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the town was called Zoar. So, this is our fourth fact. God was faithful to his promises to Abraham. It's interesting. God, God remains gracious to Lot. He doesn't, when Lot says, no, I'm not going to go to the mountains, please let me go here, God doesn't, like, override command, and then like goes up to the mountain. No, he says, okay. He doesn't override Lot's will. Lot says, hey, I don't want to do that. I want to do this instead. And God's like, okay, I'll protect you. Because Lot meant what he was saying, and nothing was going to motivate him to go further. And then we come to verse 23. The sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. So we come to our third section of this passage God's terrifying judgment. God's terrifying judgment. We're going to look at four principles of this judgment. Verse 25. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. Everything burnt to a crisp. So, our first principle is this Unbelief in coming judgment does not save. Unbelief in coming judgment does not save. Because there's a New Testament passage that discusses this event Luke 17, 28 through 30. It says this It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking. They were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. See, what we're reading here is not just a story about Lot, and up to this point, I have discussed a lot about Lot. It's not just a warning to believers about the dangers of consequences of sin. This is also a warning to unbelievers. Sodom and Gomorrah stand as a testament to God's justice and His wrath against sin. And whenever you think about those two words, I mean, even before looking at this passage, when you hear the words Sodom and Gomorrah, you know what that brings to mind. That brings to mind gross, disgusting sin, and God's fiery judgment of it. That's what it should do. It's a warning against all unbelievers. This is how God views your sin. This is what God is going to do to you because of your sin. And it's not because he's mad. It's because he's just. And you have offended him. You have broken his law. And you deserve justice. And that justice is terrible. Verse 26, after that destruction, but his wife from behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. So our next principle is this. Association with righteousness does not save. Association with righteousness does not save. See, Lot was a righteous man. Lot's wife was his wife. What closer association can you get? Being married to a righteous man. And she was still judged because she sinned. Lot's righteous character, to what degree he had it, did not save her. Luke 17, 31 through 33 says, On that day, speaking of the day of the Lord, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. (laughs) These are words from Jesus' mouth. In order to illustrate that point, he says, verse 32, "'Remember Lot's wife. "'Forever she remains a testament to the fact that you should not be devoted to, "'attracted to, swept away by worldly things.'" And so Jesus warns, and it's interesting, when Jesus is speaking here, he's not warning unbelievers, he's warning believers— that's not suggesting Lot's wife was righteous. I don't believe she was. But what's he saying? He's saying, just like Lot, and look at what happened as well to Lot's wife because of what she did, don't get attached to the world. It's not going to go well for you. And if you're an unbeliever and you think it's going to be okay because you are associated with a righteous person, no. You have to be righteous. You have to be righteous. Verse 27. Now, Abraham arose early in the morning and went to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley, and he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. He could smell it. This comes to our third principle. Self-righteousness does not save. Now, why do I say that? Because of this. A lot of times when we think about Sodom and Gomorrah, not only do we think about gross, terrible sin and God's fiery judgment of it, but we also think, wow, that's really bad. I'm not as bad, right? We think that sometimes. And especially unbelievers who are associated with the righteous and they think, whoa, that's really bad. I'm glad I'm not like that. I'm glad I'm not into that. Write this passage down, Romans 2, verses 2 through 8. This is right after chapter 1 in which Paul describes how society rebels against God and faces his judgment as a result. And then chapter 2 comes along and says this, and we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. We look at Sodom and Gomorrah and what they were about to do and clearly based on what they were about to do to Lot and his two visitors, what they've been doing for years, for generations. We look at that and we're like, yeah, they deserve to be judged. I'm glad God did that. Verse 3, But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly? of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, Eternal life. That's what they'll get. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth and obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. Guys, don't miss this. Sodom and Gomorrah is a warning that your sin, if you are not saved, is just as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah's. It may not look like it on the outside, but it is just as deserving of his wrath if you don't repent and turn to Christ. And it's a warning against those of you who may think that you are a Christian based on your actions and and comparing your actions to other people instead of relying on the sacrifice of Christ. Because if you rely on the things you do and that you're better than the people that do these things. God's going to hold you accountable to your own sin, not the sin of others that you judge. Verse 29. Thus it came about, when God destroyed the cities of the valley, that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow, when he overthrew the cities (coughs) in which Lot lived. So this is our final principle. Only true faith saves only true faith saves. What do we know about Abraham? Genesis 15:6 Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Because of Abraham's plea to God and because of Lot standing before God as righteous, God rescued him from his judgment, from his wrath against sin. He rescued him from it. And by application, That's the only thing that's going to rescue you, is righteous standing before God. How do you get that? You don't get it by trying to be better. You don't get it by trying to do what you can. You get it by trusting in Christ. He took the punishment that you deserve. That that fiery brimstone, that wrathful vengeance against sin, Jesus takes that. Somebody takes it, and it's either you or it's Jesus. Jesus takes that. He dies, and he rises again from the dead, proving that he took it, and he paid that price fully so that you can have confidence that none of it is left over for you. If you repent of your sin, you want to turn away from it, you want to stop doing it, you hate it, And instead you desire to turn to Christ and to follow after him and obey him and you believe in Christ's sacrifice as the only way to save you. Nothing else can save you. Only true faith saves. And that's what we see here because God rescues Lot because of his righteous standing before him, because of Abraham's plea. And definitely not because of any righteous deeds that Lot had done. Because clearly we see that he was a fallen person just like we are. And then finally, we come to the end of the chapter, the fourth part. Lot's miserable and ironic end, his miserable and ironic end. There's four realities about this end. Verse 30, Lot went up from Zoar, that city that he'd asked to be spared, and stayed in the mountains. He ended up going to the place that he said he wouldn't be able to make it to stayed in the mountains and his two daughters with him, for he was afraid to stay in Zoar. You might think, well, why why would he do that? Well, if you and your two daughters were three people who had escaped fiery judgment from the sky, I mean, you think maybe the people of that city, of the only city that was left, might think you were a little sus? Yeah, I think so too. And so he's afraid, and so he hides in a cave. He's terrified. So we see our first reality: Lot was paralyzed by fear. He's paralyzed by fear. You think maybe at this point he'd be like, "Hey, I know a guy. <laughs> I know Abraham, and he's receiving blessing from the Lord, and I've been miraculously saved. I'm gonna go." He doesn't. He's paralyzed goes and hides in a cave. And then we come to verse 31. Then the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine. Let us lie with him that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. On the following day, The firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also, and then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. How horribly ironic that Lot's suggestion to the men of Sodom gets fulfilled by him. It's our second reality. Lot failed to witness to his family. He failed to witness to the world around him, failed to witness to his relatives, failed to witness to his wife and daughters. See that passage that we just read, that is not a passage where his daughters are involved in some lustful thing. No. It's about cold practicality, because that's what they've learned from their father. Because what did Lot do? Lot was like, hey, this looks good. I'll pursue this. Hey, this looks good. I'll live here. Hey, this looks good. I'll get involved in this. Hey, uh, this looks like a really bad situation. Uh, maybe, Maybe we can take care of this. This seems like the best way to solve the problem. I'll offer my two daughters. So his daughters have been observing this for a while now. And they're like, yeah, people hate us. Lots, our father's terrified. He's not going to do anything. We got to do something. Let's do this. Verse 37. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. As for the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ammi. He is the father of the sons of Ammon to this day. So our third reality, Lot's legacy is sorrow and suffering for God's people. Because hopefully those names should ring a bell. Numbers 25.1 is a story in which there is a king, King Balak, and he's the king of Moab. And he's very scared about this giant group of people that is marching through his borders. And he needs to do something about it. And so, he takes his daughters, uh, as it were, the, the women of the nation of Moab, and says, hey, go mingle around with the Israelites. And they play the harlot with him. They intermarry. And it brings God's judgment. First Samuel 12, 12. There was a king, Nahash, the king of the sons of Ammon, who came against the people of Israel, and the people of Israel have been sick and tired of constantly being attacked and constantly undergoing this, and so they asked for a king, Saul. 1 Kings 11, 5-7 says that Solomon went after Ashtoreth, Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done. Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem and for Moloch, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Verse 38 is the last we ever hear about what happened to Lot afterward. That's his legacy. It's the last we hear of his life. His daughters sleep with him And they get pregnant with the sons of Ammon and the sons of Moab who continue to harass and murder and kill and plunder and destroy the children of God. That's his legacy. And then our final reality is this. Lot had nothing to show for his life. Nothing to show for his life. And perhaps after this, even after I read you that passage in 2 Peter, perhaps you're wondering, okay, was Lot really a righteous guy? (laughs) Right? Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15, this. Now, if any man builds on the foundation, that is the foundation of Christ, with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. What's Paul saying? He's saying, hey, when you live your life, if you've been saved, You are going to do things, and either you're going to do things that represent precious metals, namely righteous things, or you're going to do things that represent things that can burn, unrighteous things. Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So Lot, who is declared to be a righteous man, he is saved. We will see him in heaven. But I don't think any of his works are left. Escaped by the skin of his teeth, as it were. And the question is, if Lot is a righteous person, how could God allow this to happen to him? He's a righteous guy after all. Doesn't he say that he's going to be faithful to us, that he's going to work in us, that we're going to grow in sanctification, right? I love a quote by James Montgomery Boyce on this passage. He says this, There would be no danger if God always stepped in to stop you from doing sin. But God does not stop you. There are limits to what God will permit But nevertheless, God will let you sin. In the final analysis, God will allow you to do what you are committed to doing. And you will have to bear the consequences of your actions. We can get very wrapped up when we think about God's sovereignty. To be like, yeah, he's in control of everything. I can't help myself. Either, you know, I'm forced to go on and do righteous things, or I'm forced to go on and do unrighteous things. Well, yes, God is sovereign, but you don't know what he's decided is or isn't going to happen. You're living in the moment. As far as you're concerned, though God is sovereign over all things, you make decisions. And then, either they were righteous decisions, and God will bless you, or they were unrighteous decisions, and there will be consequences. Lot went down a gentle slope of compromise and complacency, and In contrast to that, and to close, I just want to read to you from Romans 12, 1 through 2. Paul says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Lot allowed the worldliness of Sodom to affect his decisions and desires. He paid a high price for compromising with the world and being a poor witness to Sodom, his relatives, and his own family members. And God was faithful to save him from the judgment that was brought upon the unbelievers at Sodom and Gomorrah, but he was also faithful to discipline Lot With the consequences of his compromise don't be content to risk the same perish the thought that because you're a child of god he will protect you from the consequences of your sin you will avoid leaving behind a legacy of suffering where only your own soul is rescued from judgment if you heed this warning christians will be saved from god's wrath They must not allow this truth to lull them into complacency. Don't let this lull you into complacency as you continue on with your life lest you face the consequences for compromising with the world. Let's pray. Dear Lord, this is a very heavy passage. It's a very long passage. There's a lot of judgment in this passage. And it's it's a warning. We see your faithfulness. We see your faithfulness to Abraham, your faithfulness to Lot, because he was righteous. But we also see that you are faithful to every aspect of your character, and that includes your justice. I ask that we would take that to heart, that we would remember that we, if we are Christians, that, that we've been saved, and we can rejoice in that, but that that, must not lull us into complacency, that we should strive to honor you with everything we have. And for any of us here who are not believers, that we would take the judgment of Sodom as a warning to turn to you before it's too late. In your name, amen.